0: My name is Scott. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here too. It's so good to be with you all this morning and just grateful. If you're a a guest this morning, thank you for being with us. Um, We're in a new series right now called Ecclesia. It's about the church, looking at different passages in the New Testament that talk about the church and calling attention to different issues and factors. Last week we started talking about being the church just opposed to going to church. And today is sort of part two of that idea. We're going to be looking at Colossians 3 together. Um, verses 12 through 17. So if you got a Bible, would you open that up there? If not, it's in your bulletin, and it'll be up on the screen as well, and I'm going to read it out loud for us together. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and this letter that he's writing to them is meant to be passed around to the region. So all the Christians in all the different cities in that area, the expectation for the letter to Ephesus the church there and here, is that it would be shared. And you can tell by the structure of the letter, it's very general, very not, not nearly as specific as his other letters, like greet so-and-so. And it's meant to be for us, the church. And so turn to chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, where Paul writes this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. So we're studying what it means to be the church, and the word ecclesia or ecclesia is the New Testament word for church. And it literally means in the original language to be called out, to be called out from something and for something else. We saw last week that as Christians, we are called out of isolation and called into community. We're called out of a consumeristic mentality, which is so hard for us, American Westerners, called out of being a consumer, but called into commitment. And so what Paul is saying to us this morning and what we want to say to one another this morning is a hard word for us, if we're honest, because we are highly privatized, individualistic, and consumeristic people in the West, and yet the Word of God says that we need one another, and we're talking about what that means to be a church. Over the years, I've seen many kinds of people, of course, in the church, but I've seen two kinds. You've got to always boil it down to two only, right? Two kinds of people. <laughs> There are those people that go to church and that there are those people that are the church. There are those people that sort of dabble in church or sort of drive by church, but then there are those people that are the essence of the church. They, they serve, they live it out. The church is, is part of their very DNA as a people. And I have to say this. This is just a general observation. Every, every single spiritually mature person I have looked up to over the years, whether that's somebody I know personally or as a hero that I've read about is somebody that has been utterly devoted to God's Word on the one hand, but God's people on the other hand. God's Word and God's people are, the, I think, two of the most critical things that the Bible points to for us to be growing spiritually. God's Word and God's people. So much so that today, this is sort of our main point and main idea God's word and God's people are indispensable to spiritual growth. I believe that to be absolutely true. Sanctification. God's word and God's people are indispensable to your sanctification. Let's talk about what that means for just a second. Paul has lots of big ideas throughout his letters, but one of his primary themes is justification. Which is this idea, since it's nearly the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, let's talk about justification and make Martin Luther proud for just a minute. Justification by faith, that when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God. You're not in a process of being reconciled to God, you are reconciled to God. When you have faith in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are beloved of God, you are now a part of God's family, you're his son or daughter justified before him by faith alone. After that moment, though, and and we believe that the Holy Spirit then comes into a person's life at that moment of justification, and then the rest of their life is a journey we call sanctification that Paul talks about, which is the process whereby the Holy Spirit, which each one of us has the presence of, the person of the Holy Spirit, and one of his primary job descriptions is to make you more like Jesus. That isn't easy. It's not an easy job. It's often painful to us. But it is the process whereby the Holy Spirit is working every detail of our life, Romans eight twenty eight to be more and more into the image of God, that we may be more like Jesus over time. He is making us imperfect in this life, but more and more and more like Jesus. And I believe that God's word and God's people simultaneously are key ingredients to us becoming more like Jesus, and without that reality in our life that just does not take place to the same extent. Three main points today from our passage. The church's identity, the church's mandate, and thirdly, the church's authority. Identity, mandate, and authority. First, identity. In this section, Paul is calling us to be sanctified, I just said, and he's using the imagery of taking off the old self, which is rooted in selfishness and rebellion. Paul also calls it the flesh in Romans. So he's saying, take off what is earthly of you and fleshly of you, broken, fallen, selfish, sinful, and put on other attributes. He says to put to death certain things and to put on other things. In Colossians 3.1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Put off these things and put on other things by looking to Christ. He then says, put off these broken, fallen things. their sex, sexual immorality, he mentions, impurity, evil desires, covetousness, covetousness wanting what's not mine, like you have something and I want it, covetousness, whether it's your wife or your car or your house. He's saying, put that off, put off lying, put off anger, wrath, malice, and slander. And what I find super interesting about Paul's comments here is he's defining holiness and sanctification by saying, get rid of some things in your life, but do you notice how communal these attributes are? that these aren't just private individual characteristics or ethics. These are things that have an impact on other people. Lying, covetousness. If I covet what you own, I'm not loving you as I'm called to love you. If I want what you have, and it's not rightly mine, that's not loving you the way that I'm calling you. If I lie to you, if if I distort the truth, if I live a lie, then I'm not loving you if I live with anger, wrath, malice. What we see is Holiness, in the negative sense, things that are to be put away from us have a communal nature to them. And so holiness is defined in community. We, we see, especially in this passage, instead, Paul says, put on these attributes. Get rid of these over here, but put these on you. And this is what the church should be known about. In Colossians 3.12, he says this, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In just a minute, we're going to talk about these positive attributes that we're supposed to be putting on. But first, I want to talk about your identity. Church, you have an identity. You're the sons and daughters of God. And Paul writes in this passage these three things about us, put on as God's chosen people. And so this morning, I want to tell you, church, you are God's chosen people. It's the same language that the Lord used with Israel. He called out Abraham, and he called out Isaac and Jacob, and he kept calling out His not only the patriarchs of the faith, but all of Israel were known, you know this if you went to Sunday school at all, as God's holy chosen people. In the New Testament, Paul reiterates that language, and, and others as well, Acts and Peter, and talks about how we are God's chosen people, and that usually leads to all kinds of, debate and philosophical arguing and what about free will and this and that and we get so hung up in the philosophy of it or the theology of it and fight about it often that we fail to see the power of what Paul is saying and this morning I'm asking you to not get caught up in the philosophy but would you rest in the identity for just a minute you are God's chosen people not frozen chosen Mean, cold, God chose me, I'm so fantastic. You're supposed to be humbled by this reality. God chose me? And yet, I want you to rest in it, like take a deep breath of this and just let it wash over you. Of all the people in the world, not based because you're so perfect and moral, but by his grace, you're God's chosen people. He chose you. And, and if we could come to the text for the first time, like I remember, literally the first time this concept dawned on me as I'm reading the Bible, I didn't argue it, I didn't debate it. I was a brand new Christian. I just said, "That's absolutely amazing," and I lived it. I was I was in the midst of living it because out of the, out of nowhere, I had no faith, and then I had faith. And so I could totally relate to what Paul was saying. I, I am God's chosen. Per- like, uh, why do I believe? All of a sudden, I don't. I don't believe now. I believe like. I just rested in it, and I didn't debate it or argue. I just rested in it. And this morning, I want you to rest as your identity that God loves you and he chose you. You're his chosen people. Next, you're holy. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy, holy. There's a part of you, trust me, I know that's not holy. Same with me, broken, fallen, selfish, sinful. I get that. But God says your identity is not that, you're holy. What does that mean? In in the Old Testament, something was holy if it was set apart for God. It's like a candlestick in in the temple would be holy, set apart from God. A bowl uh, used in the sacrifice would be set apart for God. You, friends, are his chosen ones, and you're holy. In spite of the fact that you're still a broken, fallen, sinful person, The Father sees you and your identity as holy. And the third one is what you really need to hear is your beloved. You are God's chosen ones who are holy, and you are beloved of the Lord. No, I don't think you heard me. You're beloved of the Lord. You are the beloved of the Lord. That's your identity. Whether you own it, whether you are cloaking yourself in that yet or not, that is true of you. Chosen ones of the Lord, holy and beloved. There there are parts of the Bible that make me blush when I read it. There's a place in the Bible that says that the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, literally sings over his children. Beloved. Beloved. You're loved by God. You are more loved by God than I can ever possibly communicate to you. I am actually an astoundingly good father. (laughs) My sons are here today. You can ask them. Like, I'm, I'm an incredibly good father. And yet, I am broken. I am sinful. And Jesus says I'm evil. Remember? Because there's this teaching where Jesus says, You who are evil give good gifts to your sons and your daughters, do you not? And yet, in spite of that reality, I give good gifts to my sons. I love my sons. I would lay down my life for my sons this instant if I needed to. And compared to God, Jesus says, I'm an evil father. I love my sons. I would withhold no good thing from them if it were in my resources. I would do everything I could to bless them and to never curse them. I I end up cursing them, incidentally, but I want to bless them. If that's true of me, how much more true is it of the Heavenly Father who says, listen, you're beloved. This is your identity. But here's the problem. You won't believe this is true without the word of God telling you over and over and over and over and over that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Instead, you will look inside yourself, and I don't care what the self-help books tell you, and they'll tell you just look inside yourself and look and look and look, and you don't need anyone else. You just need yourself. You just do you, man, and the more you just, I'm gonna be me and do me. Well, guess what? When I look inside, I don't see holy and lovely and beautiful beautiful, and beloved, I see my guilt, my brokenness, and my shame, and I think that's what you see, too, and I can look in the mirror all the time, and say, no, I'm holy, and I'm good, but I need God's word to say it to me, and smack me in the face, and say, Scott, this is true of you. I think that's what you need, too. That's why I'm yelling right now. (laughs) It's true, but the problem, and the reason I'm all hyped up, is this. We keep believing the lie that we're going to find this truth outside of God's word and outside of God's people. But I have this deep con- <laughs> conviction that the church needs to desperately hear this word, that you won't find what you need, which is your identity, that you're beloved of God, apart, alone. And apart from God's word, you need God's word and you need God's people. I am learning to believe that I really am the beloved of the Lord and I am I'm holy and I'm set apart over years of walking with the Lord, but I did not find that in isolation. What I found is the church keeps telling me it's true. I have fellow pastors, that just a couple, that I will call several times a year and confess sin to. And they call me, and they confess sin to me. And we remind one another, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. You know that, right, Scott? They'll say to me, you know, David, my friend, you know you're in the name of Jesus Christ. You are forgi- You know that, right? That you're cleansed from your sin, that you're justified, that in spite of what just happened, you're, you're being sanctified. The Holy Spirit's still in your life. I just want to, rem- I want you to remind you of that. See, this is what God's people are meant to do for one another: encourage one another, forgive one another, uh, you know, love one another. Above all, Paul says, "Put on love." But friends, we we want to do it in isolation, and we want to do it apart from God's word. The next thing we see is the church's mandate, and he says this: as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on these things. Put off all this other stuff, but put this on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. If anybody has a complaint against, forgive each other. To what extent should I forgive them? As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love. It binds everything together. Love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Friends, we have a mandate to put off certain things, to get certain things out of our life and to get other things into our life. But do you notice the stuff we're supposed to get rid of has a communal nature. It's my relationship to you, my lying, my covetousness, my sexual immorality, whatever it is, it has a communal relational aspect. And now Paul is saying, look, put these things on and they all have a communal aspect. Compassionate hearts. compassion is something I have with regards to you. Uh, Kindness has to be worked out in relationship. Humility, the same thing. That's not in relationship to myself. That's towards you. Uh, Meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Above all, put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as one body, he says. There's this epidemic going on in the church right now. I mentioned it last week, and I and I, I say this with humility. I really do, and the epidemic is this. It's people leaving local churches for superficial reasons on the one hand, and, and there are reasons to leave a local church, okay? If you join this church, it's not like we you sign in blood and we never let you leave. You can never, ever go to another local church. That's not it, but there are good reasons to leave and go to another local church, but a lot of times they're superficial, they're consumeristic. There's, there's a little better preaching, a little better music, a little uh, I got this over here, it's just we kind of pick and choose like a buffet line. On the one hand, that's an epidemic, but there's a greater epidemic of people leaving community, leaving a local church, and never going back to another one, whatever their initial intentions were. It's epidemic. But I just have a burden to say to us and to the church, holiness is not found in isolation. And it's not found in consumerism. It's found in commitment to the body of Christ. We're called to love the church and commit to a local church. And it's hard. I know it is. It's difficult. I was reading an article um, this last year in 2016 in the New York Times and it turns out that it's the most it was the most read article in the New York Times in 2016, and it wasn't about politics. I couldn't believe it. It was actually about commitment in marriage, of all things. It was entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Not, not how not to, it was why you will absolutely marry the wrong person. And it's saying in this article, meaning marriage, all marriage is a community, by the way, right? And it's saying, like, we live in this very consumer-driven culture where it's all about me. I want what I want, when I want it, where I want it. I want it right now. And we, all of us, take that into marriage, right? And what it's saying is, we will then, therefore, get to this place in marriage where we say, I had to have married the wrong person because they're driving me crazy. Not my marriage, but, you know, like, your marriage, and it says this, it's one of those things we're most afraid might happen to us. We get, go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we all do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. And in a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on an early dinner date would be, and how crazy are you? <laughs> Not, are you crazy? It's like, I know you're crazy, but like, you know, scale one to... The problem is that before marriage, we rarely delve into our complexities. Whenever casual relationships threaten to reveal our flaws, we just blame the other and call it a day. And one of the privileges of being on our own is there the sincere impression that we are really quite easy to live with. <laughs> right? Marriage is not the only solution. A community is a solution. Marriage is a community. It's a small one, but then it often leads to a larger community. And in that community of marriage, you learn quickly, because I really thought when I was single, I'm pretty easy to get along with. Man, I'm patient. I, You know, and then Becky told me that's really not true. And so... <laughs> you will always marry the wrong person, considering the culture, the air in which we're breathing, and you will always join the wrong church. It's true. It doesn't matter how great the local church I promise you, if you join it and you commit to it and you get into the community, deep into it and feel its needs and its problems, it will rub you. It will be difficult as marriage is difficult and it will get to the point where you'll say, maybe I joined the wrong church. Because if we take this perfectionistic, hey, a community of any, it just has to be perfect and always meet my needs. It will let you down. I promise. But what we said last week, what you miss in that instance, if you just bail every time it gets hard, whether that's marriage or every time it gets hard in any community, you will miss the blessing and the holiness that can come through commitment. Commitment. Even the New York Times agrees. Finally, the third thing I want us to see is the church's authority, and just for a second, I want to see this. It's the scripture. And this is what, this is what Paul is saying. It's God's people and God's word, they're indispensable to your growth and your sanctification. Let the word of Christ live in you richly. Take residence in your heart, teaching and admonishing one another, one another. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs and thanksgiving in your heart, whatever you do in the name, do it in the name of Jesus. What he's saying is this. God's holy word is indispensable, and when it's lived out in a community especially, There's power. I I need you to teach me. I need you to admonish me. We need to worship together. And what Paul is saying is we do these things together, we grow. We need God's word. We need one another. We're the church. We're the body. We are one, Paul says. God's word and God's people are indispensable to spiritual growth. This last week, our children's director, Megan South, um, sent an email out to her whole team. And, and when she sent it, she, she didn't like run it by us or anything. She just sent it. And later during the week, she texted all of us on staff saying, hey, by the way, I shared this with my team, this email. And when I read it, it was so profound to me. And it was like, it was, it was like last week's sermon, but even better. And that's hard to believe, right? But I mean, even better and she took what I said last week and just amplified it. And I, I asked her at first, um, can we email the whole church? And she said, I don't know. And then, and then I did the audacious thing and said, um, would you be willing to share on Sunday to the whole church like what you wrote in that email? And she loves to publicly speak. So would you please welcome <laughs> Megan.
1: Thanks. Good morning. Uh, so I do send a weekly email out to my team and to anyone with kids. So sidebar, if you don't get that email, find me and I'll send it to you. Um, and this week I wrote something and I deleted it. And then I wrote this. That's never happened before. It just wasn't what I wanted to say. And so I definitely feel that the Lord was leading me to share this with you. So here's my what I, what I sent out. Be the church. When Scott preached last Sunday, I wanted to jump up and yell out, yes, listen to this man. Listen to him. And I feel this way this week, too, just by the way. (laughs) Listen to him. He knows something. He knows something that you need to hear. And I wanted to tell you a piece of our story. And obviously, I didn't do that because I don't think Scott would enjoy it. And obviously, I don't love being up here, but God keeps bringing me up here, so (laughs) I will come. And it's a good story. It's God's story, so I'm, I'm willing to share. So consider this my jump up. My husband and I went to a great church for about 10 years. We were in small groups at this church. We served at this church. We had friends at this church. We had community at this church. It was a great church. It still is a great church. We loved our community. And then we had kids. And it got a little bit harder. Got a little bit harder to get to church. And it got a little bit harder to get to small group. Sound familiar to any of you, maybe? And so instead of fighting for our community, we slowly backed up and we threw up the white flag, and we just walked right out the door. And we told ourselves our desire was to go to a smaller church where we could really get plugged in and do life with people all around us. sounds so good, except that we just stopped going altogether. We were not going to church. And if you hear nothing else that I say today, hear this, please don't do that. Please don't stop going. It's not safe. It's not wise, it's not fun, and it's not what God says to do. We found ourselves what we called church homeless. We even joked about it. We were not super excited about checking out churches because it's not that fun. It's intimidating. It's hard being the new people. We thought we had it together. We're both believers. What could possibly go wrong? A lot can go wrong, and a lot did go wrong. And we found ourselves living in such a way we didn't recognize ourselves, How had this happened? How could this be? But we loved God. But we weren't living for God. We were living for us. And we didn't have a community of believers around us saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Looking back, it shocks me that not one person questioned or challenged me. Not one asked me why I wasn't going to church. Not one person. Not one of my friends. Oh, how I wish I had people lovingly getting all up in my business and pointing me back to what Jesus wanted for me. But I can't blame them. This was on me. I had somehow made the choice to believe the lie that I just didn't need my church. But God is so faithful. He rescued Peter and I, and God God somehow got us through the doors of New Valley. And he used every single ministry to change our lives. And this sounds dramatic, and it is dramatic, and it's still dramatic right now, right at this very minute. The preaching spoke to the most hidden parts of our hearts and brought forth reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing to all of these areas that had been broken for a very long time, and it still is. The music spoke to us where we were. I know I don't have to tell you how God uses this worship band to talk to you. Children's ministry brought on an excitement and adoration for the Lord we hadn't seen before in our children. Women's ministry offered a place to learn and form relationships with women who truly did want to spend all their time together. It's kind of (laughs) weird. Men's ministry gave Peter a place to meet godly men who love the Lord. We joined a C group, which offered us not only friendship, but deep care, growth, and challenge. Community is not just important. It is vital. It is your lifeline, and it is God's sweet mercy to you. You need people and people need you. I need you. I need you to know me. I need to be known by you so you can see how messed up I am and how holy and amazing God is. I need to be known by you so that when I stumble, you can help me and you can challenge me and you can call me out and you can point me back to Jesus. I love New Valley Church. Not because of one person event, program, I love New Valley Church because what God has done and what he is still doing. God used New Valley to save me from my sinful selfish self. He held my face and he said, there is nothing, nothing you can do to separate yourself from me. He saved my marriage at New Valley. He saved my children at New Valley. He gave me friends and he even gave me a job, which is just too good. It's just too good. Please lean in. I know it's hard. I I really, truly know it's hard. I know. And it's radical, and it's not what this world tells us to do. The world says if it gets hard, just go find something else. But it's worth it. I am living, breathing, standing in front of you, broken and redeemed, proof that it's worth it. Don't just attend. Do attend. Don't stop coming. But join. Join a group. Join a team. Join a ministry. Find your people. You need to be known. And if you are having a hard time finding those people, please come find me. I know what it's like, and I will make it my life's mission to help you or find someone that can help you. Thank you for being our church.
0: You guys, when a local church is just trying to be faithful, never perfect, just any local church. This is the kind of stuff that takes place. God loves his church. God uses the church in all of its imperfections. I'm going to end with this quote from Scott Salls. It's the same quote I ended with last week, but I love it. Jesus loves his church at her best and her worst. He laid down his life for the church. He will never leave her or forsake her. He will complete the work he started in her. In other words, Jesus never looked for more of God by having less of the church. Instead, he married her. The church is the chosen, beloved bride of Christ, the same language from our passage this morning. What does it say about us if the church is good enough for the Father to adopt, for the Spirit to inhabit, and for Jesus to marry, but not good enough for us to join? That is the question our culture has to ask. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, I tell you, he's talking to Peter and the apostles, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you love the church. That you you take individuals and their brokenness and their fallenness and their sin and shame, and you redeem them, and then you call them not to the desert to be alone, but into a community, the body, the family that is the church. Lord, your church is imperfect, it's weak, it's broken, it's in need, but Father, it is your bride, and we love you. We pray, we just pray that you would perfect us more and more into your image. We know that this city needs the church to be the church. That this city needs authentic and real communities. People that love you are humbled by their own sin and are just pointing people to you, Father. Help us to be that, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples for the Passover meal. He broke bread, the Passover bread, and he pointed to it and said, this is just beyond bread. This is my body. I'm about to be broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is my body, which will be broken. He blessed the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Drink from this, all of you, for the remissions of sin. And so we gather, and and we take the Lord's Supper together. And during the week, even though I'm an ordained pastor, I don't just get in my office and have the Lord's Supper by myself. I wait until I'm with you because another word for this meal is communion. It represents so many things, but one of the things that it is for us is our communion. We feast, not just as private individuals, but together as the church on the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. If he is your hope, come to him this morning. Come, feast on his body and his shed blood for you. If you're still trying to figure that out, would you come? Come by faith. I don't know what's holding you back just yet, but Jesus is good. No one will love you like him. No one has the power to save you or love you like Christ can. Come to him by faith. Join us at the table. I remind you that the outer rings have wine in them, the inner rings have juice. When you receive the elements and you're ready to partake, do so.